Hello everyone and welcome to Sam Talks Technology, your weekly guide about all things tech and business with Sam Sethi. Hello and welcome to another in a series of Sam Talks Technology. I've got a wonderful founder of a company called Flick. He's Nigel Eccles. Nigel, hello, how are you? Hi, not so bad. Thanks for, Thanks for joining us. Now, where, where do we find you self-isolating in the world today? I am in uh, New York State, so I'm in Westchester, 40 minutes uh, north of New York. Obviously, New York being the epicenter currently of the COVID-19. It is. I chat to a lot of my team in Edinburgh, and I think our experience is quite similar in that we're locked down at home. In the UK, I think, is a little stricter in that you're only supposed to be out once a day. So we have a pretty similar experience. We go grocery shopping once a week, and we attempt to homeschool our three children with varying levels of success. I think most entrepreneurs, if you ask them, have been self-isolating for many years. We, we tend to work from home and do crazy yeah. hours anyway. The, the, the big change, I think, is that we have all our kids here. So my team, my product and engineering team are all in Edinburgh. And so I've worked with them remotely for two years. I've had a lot of experience doing that, but having that and then three kids rumbling around the house is is unusual. Now, Flick's your current company. What is Flick? So Flick is a group chat platform for sports fans. Our vision is to recreate the experience of being uh, at the game, but on your phone. And so you're going to be watching the game on television. And this is an idea. It's like, well, what happens at the stadium? Why is the stadium better? Well, here's some things that happen in the stadium. You can hear people cheering. You can chat to other fans. You can sort of trade predictions on what's going to happen. Those are the things that happen at the game. And so we said, well, let's look at putting those things inside an app so that I actually could watch the game from home. I could sort of take the temperature. What's the rest of the crowd saying? Like people that I don't know. That's one of the great things we're going to games. You can, you're sitting beside people you maybe don't know and you can hear what other people are saying. Additionally, I could have a side conversation with groups of friends. We're putting that into the app that I can build together a little group of five or 10 people who are friends. We can chat at the same time. And additionally, I can cheer. So we're building cheering into the app. You can actually hit an icon. We've actually created, for some of our more popular groups, we've created particular cheer modes or animated graphics that match with that team. That's brilliant. I'm a Liverpool fan and we use a WhatsApp group currently for sharing while watching the match. Now the stadiums are going to be empty, so the atmosphere is going to be zero. We'll want to go to something like Flick. Absolutely. My experience is when you join the group while you're watching the game, it absolutely lifts the experience because it's not just watching on television. You can actually do chat and the banter that you get from going to the game you actually are getting within the app and a lot of it is people you don't know and some of it's really funny and then some of it is your friends you can like chat and you're getting that all in that experience in the app while watching on television two questions how much does it cost for me to join something like flick it's free it's free okay that then bodes the question how do you make money from Mm -hmm. flick so we have a couple of different revenue streams some of the cheers we have is our premium cheers and you pay for them now what we do is we actually pass most of the value onto the host of the group, but we do take a margin on that. And then secondly, uh, we're in the process of integrating with a number of sports books and we do a revenue share with them because what we're finding is people are coming in and they want to make predictions start of the game. And so they'll go, okay, I'm predicting this person's the first goal scorer. What we're going to do with that and say, well, you're predicting this person's the first goal scorer. He's actually trading at five to one. 
Right? So why don't you actually go through and make a bet? So those are the two sort of main revenue streams we're looking at. And soccer for Americans, but football for us. Is that the only sport or do you do multiple sports? No. So the platform works with any sports. We're particularly optimizing for soccer uh, and then the three major U.S. sports, which is football, basketball, and baseball. And do you do internationalization? So is there a German version of Spanish as well? It's not internationalized. There's very little text in the app, but you know we already have German groups. We've got Greek groups. We've actually tested it on, with Arabic, and it, it works. <laughs> so the product actually is internationalized itself but it's not specifically internationalized to those markets. And so how many users roughly do you have on the platform? Still very early. At the moment, it's in the sort of tens of thousands of users. Obviously, we don't have any sport at the moment, but when we pre-COVID, we were growing about 50% month on month. We're pretty confident when sports comes back, we will then see that, that rapid growth come back again. So when did Flick start then? You say it's pretty early days. Yeah. So here's the funny thing. When I left Fantasy Sports Platform... Which we'll talk more about shortly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and we're doing about, about 1.5 billion per annum in entry fees. So about 150 million a year in revenue. So this sort of real-time financial exchange, incredibly complex to build. And so I looked at group chat and thought, well, that's pretty easy, right? There's no money flowing through it. And what we discovered is actually very complex because you're building this end-to-end group chat experience where you want to have super low latency. You need to deal with, these are public forums. People are trolling. You need to be able to deal with that. You need to deal with rich media. And so we started work on it early 2018 And we only really got the product working for sports by about September last year. And that's when we really started to scale September onwards last year. But it really was about a year and a half of development before that. And you're fully funded. You've you've gone out and raised funding. Yes, we raised four million two years ago, but we always kept our team very small. We did, even though we sort of thought it was going to be easier than we thought, we sort of said, look, we need to give ourselves plenty of runway to build this product and, and get it right. I'll come back to Flick mm-hmm. shortly. You mentioned it, FanDuel. You started FanDuel with your wife, Leslie. When did that start and what was the concept behind that one? There was actually four co-founders, as myself and Leslie, and three others who were engineers. So Rob Jones, who's also my co-founder of Flick, Tom Griffiths, and Chris Stafford. We started the company in 2007, actually based in Edinburgh, Originally, it was a, a prediction market where you could trade predictions on mostly politics, but then we started going into other verticals like sports. And it, what happened by the end of 2008, we saw that sports was taking off. We also saw that our business model, which was ad-based, wasn't very strong. And so we sort of sat back and said, wait a second, we've got a good team. We know how to build this really fun product, but we probably need to pivot into something different. And that's when we said, let's look at fantasy sports. And we looked at fantasy sports and we saw that this was a market at the time was about 25 million people playing it, but the games were quite slow. They would take all season. We thought, well, what if we took this game that people loved and we made it much faster? We said, the games are going to last one day. You're going to pick your team just for today. We're going to add real money. So you're going to put in an entry fee and you're going to win a prize today. And then we're going to make it fully mobile. And that was our thesis. And we launched that in 2009 and scaled it very, very rapidly thereafter. Now, 
you went on something called Web Mission, mm-hmm. which Ollie Barrett was one of the That's people right. organising. The idea, I uh, hasten to add, but I will do it. It was a lunch meeting between me and Ollie. I'm going to take yeah. credit, and Ollie will vouch for me. Yeah, I, I originally called it C to C, coast to coast. Yeah, that was its original name. So I think Ollie came up with a better name for it. So Ollie took you guys over, and I mm-hmm. quite a few friends from that time. So yeah, Video and eDocker and Huddle. Mm-hmm. And skim links or skim bit what, what was the web mission like for you it was incredible so yeah there was 20 companies there we wanted to be a silicon valley startup we didn't really know what that meant but it looked cool and you know we saw youtube <laughs> being bought for several billion and, and more just like we thought it was a really cool place to like build a company in that ethos and we were like we want to build that sort of silicon valley type company in edinburgh and so it wasn't the First time I'd been in San Francisco, I'd been a few times before, but it was a really great opportunity to meet entrepreneurs out there, to meet investors and really kind of soak up that experience and then build a network of other entrepreneurs who were in very similar position like us. They were like trying to build a product, trying to build a team, trying to raise money. And so it really built a network for me. It was a core part of building the network for the next 10 years. Um, I'm still in contact with a lot of those people who've been super helpful, just helping us. Who should we pitching? How should I manage this board member? All of those things that people had like sort of firsthand experience. It really, it was, it was great. I'm still really good memories of that trip. So web missions happened. You're, mm-hmm. You've got FanDuel. It's accelerating rapidly. Mm-hmm. Now, you said in pre-chat, you raised about 450 million funding. Oh, yes. So, well, I'd say with Fangio, it wasn't an overnight success at all early on. We launched it in the summer of 2009, and I would say it wasn't until 2011. So two years later, after the launch of Fangio, and actually four years after we started HubDub, which was our pre-company, did it really start to work. Summer, September 2011 was the point where we really started to get traction. The next period from 2011 to 2000. 15 was a period of very fast growth. So every year we were growing about 5x year on year. And what and would so you put that growth down to? Was it technology being much more uh, available? It was a combination of product and marketing. It, it was a great product. Users loved the product. You know, people would come from having played fantasy sports, which they loved, to saying, wow, this is like fantasy sports on steroids. It's like, you know, the experience was just like faster, more exciting, and they could do everything on their phone. So that was one part. But the other part was we had to get users to try it, and that was really marketing, a very quantitative marketing approach. So we knew what our marketing team did is every year they spent, and they could acquire a user for, say, $50. We knew that user was worth maybe $400, $500. But the marketing team would do is they'd go out and spend, say, a million dollars, and they would say, okay, we're splitting it between radio, PPC, TV, all these different channels. We can tell you exactly what our cost per acquisition to each of these channels. And then the next year, what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend 5x that. And this is how I'm going to allocate it between those channels. And these are the things we've learned. These things work. These things didn't work. And then we're going to spend 5 million. And then the next year, 15 million. The next year, 2014, I think we spent 70 million. Wow. And then 2015, we spent 250 million. Wow. Now that's, that's rapid customer acquisition growth. Yeah, yeah, it was. Well, clearly it worked. So the company got big fast. You raised a lot of money. 
I'm assuming the, the story ended very well then. <laughs> <laughs> well, not really. And the story is not over. So the company itself has gone on to continue to be incredibly successful. So in, in 2000, early 2018, around April, the US Supreme Court repealed PASPA, which is a law that prevented states from, it, well, it basically banned sports betting, regulated or legal sports betting. FanDuel was built as a platform in fantasy sports, but we always knew that if sports betting happened, we would be in an incredible position because we had these sort of young male sports fans that wanted to spend real money uh, on their sports knowledge, so very like sports betting, and then we would be in a great position to cross-sell into sports betting, and, and that's what happened. FanDuel is now number one in that market. It's a market that is worth a uh, billion dollars this year in revenue and is predicted to go to 20 billion dollars so yes uh, the company's gone on and been very successful the challenge for us founders and then the other ordinary shareholders was over that period of time we raised about 450 million from uh, venture capital and then private equity and in 2015 uh, the company ran into a lot of legal and regulatory challenges we had to work our way through that and which we did and we really were kind of through that by the summer of 2017 however what became clear was uh, our private equity investors or board who were preference shareholders wanted to find a way that they would get all of the upside of the company and they would sort of kick out the ordinary shareholders not being the founders, the angel investors, and the employees, which owned about 10% of the company. And so the way in which they did that, and this is public because uh, we, we filed a suit, is they created a new company. And what they did is they engineered for that new company to acquire FanDuel. Now, that new company was buying FanDuel using equity. And so they had to then say, well, okay, what is the value uh, of Fangio. What's the value of that equity that's buying Fangio? Our preference stack was 559 million, which meant that if the value of Fangio was above 559 million, they would to share that with the ordinary shareholders. If it's below that, they wouldn't have to share. And so they, the board, which was all represented these venture capital and private equity investors, decided that the value of Fangio was 559 million and therefore they could wipe out the ordinary shareholders. Uh, they did that and not only did they do that, but they did that about three weeks after the US repealed PASPA, this ability for companies to enter sports betting. That itself was a huge event for like a huge valuation event. To just give you an idea, one of our closest direct competitors, DraftKings, who we previously, the summer before, were going to merge with on a 50-50 merger, raised money at a $1.5 billion valuation. Yeah, their current valuation is $6.5 billion. And their current valuation is over, yeah, is over $6 billion. So the board that's controlled it, and the way they did that was they misused a drag-along right because really a drag-along right can only be used whenever it's like an arm's-length transaction. You, you can't use a drag-along right to sell something to yourself for below its true value. That's called a, you know, that's a related party transaction. You're basically have fit in both camps. Additionally, what the board should have done was they should have nominated a independent subcommittee and said, look, uh, they should have looked at themselves and said, us board members are conflicted. We have to, and this is very common in US and UK law, that 
as a board member, you represent all shareholders. You don't represent your own interest. You represent the shareholders of the company. You, you, you hear people talking about fiduciary duty. You cannot trade in your own interest over the interests of other shareholders as a board member. And so they didn't nominate an independent subcommittee. They didn't put in another alternative you can do is like, let's get an investment back to, act, to put a valuation on this company. They didn't do that. And then lastly, to just compound it, they didn't actually share the documentation with the shareholders. And so many shareholders didn't even know what they had done until after the transaction had taken place. So, you know, illegal and unethical. And what happened immediately afterwards, or actually even before the transaction closed, we filed suit and basically to the company and say, stop, like this is what you're doing is a clear breach of the fiduciary duty towards your shareholders. And then more recently, last uh, two months ago, uh, we filed suit in New York against the board members laying out the breach of fiduciary duty. And that is public. And if there's an entrepreneur who is concerned, you know, wants to understand why there's things like control rights or how a board can act, I would read that lawsuit because I think it's a very good kind of, this is what potentially people could do, you know, and this is what they did in this instance. It just, it's so immoral. I know it's about money and I know entrepreneurs go in to make money and we are passionate and VCs are known as vulture capitalists and not all of them are bad. There are some very good ones, but this plainly feels like a totally immoral act to sideline the founders who've created the value in order to upside themselves. And it just feels wrong. Yeah, it absolutely is. And not by no means all investors are like this. I, I no. think this actually is an extreme. And I have plenty of friends who've had bad experiences, but this is pretty, it's really up there. Uh, it's probably one of the, the most extreme acts that I've ever seen. Not only, the thing that sort of sticks with me is not only did they do this to the founders or some angel investors they clearly didn't care about, they did this to 400, 450 employees who were still in the building. So we have these people in the building who watched their board members make millions of dollars. The executive team, as it were, because we had uh, the founders had left at this point, the executive team make tens of millions of dollars while they were told that the value of the company was zero. And some of these people had put their hand in their pocket and like spent $5,000. One of my former colleagues, he borrowed $5,000 from his dad to buy his options. And the same, in the same transaction that made millions of dollars for the board members and the executive team, he was told that his $5,000 worth zero in a company that is worth billions of dollars now and was worth billions of dollars then. That's why this is in court. So didn't everyone just walk off that day? You know, it's very tough for me. Like there was like a lot of people left pretty soon afterwards, but it's tough, right? You not only have you seen your equity wiped out, but you're also going to lose your job. Certainly a lot of people left over the following year and morale, certainly from what I can see, really, you know, you can imagine what happened morale, but you know, it absolutely tanked. So yes, they, they did leave in time, but they, won't, they don't really have a recourse. And that's why I started the process of litigating it. And so not only am I litigating it, I actually have a hundred other co-plaintiffs uh, of which around 90 of those are former employees. So former employees of the companies who weren't as big a shareholder as I was, but it's, you know, similarly were affected uh, through this transaction. Well, good luck with the outcome of that one, Nigel. 
I'll certainly be keeping an eye out for that and, and wish you well. Now, I guess that stops by you doing the, the legal litigation action. That stopped any merger between FanDuel and DraftKings. Oh, no, no, that was, so the FanDuel DraftKings merger was in, uh, was before that. So what happened, it was in late 2016, we agreed to merge with DraftKings. We had formally agreed and we were waiting FTC clearance. But then in June of 2017, the FTC blocked that merger. Oh, right. Okay. We both went off our separate ways. As you noted, DraftKings in the summer of 2018 raised at a $1.5 billion valuation and last week went public at a $6 billion valuation. So DraftKings, again, is also being you know, very successful, but again, just another very good example is this, this 2018 incredibly valuable company, even more valuable today. Okay. Well, look, uh, let's move on for Flick. You know, You've grown it. It started. It's had a little hiccup because of COVID-19. But as you said earlier, when sport does come back, and it will eventually, it will be very different to begin with, but it eventually will return. Actually, the environment that we're headed into is sports without fans and stadium. Flex optimal for that. Now, we now have a situation where you have 50,000 people who normally would go into a stadium and hang out together can't do that. In fact, they potentially even can't go to a sports bar and hang out together. They really will have to watch it from home. And we are recreating that experience at home. And so actually we think the demand for Flick is going to be sort of 10x what, what it would be before uh, COVID-19. I was reading a report from the uh, mayor of Liverpool who is trying to get the season ended. And mm. uh, of course, he's an Evertonian, so he would. I wonder if that. <laughs> but his argument was that fans would congregate outside of grounds because they're not allowed in grounds and just simply create the atmosphere outside of a ground or if they weren't allowed in the bar they would just do it you know the street yeah so again as i said i think you're right i think flick if you can get that sort of marketing kick i thought i thought that argument was ridiculous like we do have you know, we've got incredibly good compliance. And there's been a few instances where people have not been compliant. It's like treating sports fans like they're complete idiots. You know, the, if they can be compliant without sports and you tell them, hey, guys, their sports is going to come back, but you're going to have to adhere to these rules. And if you don't adhere to these rules, they're going to go away again. I think we're all going to go, we'll sit at home. You know, yeah. it's not that hard. You're not, it's not like... It's not like, you know, we're making this great sacrifice. We're like, okay, we'll sit at home and watch it on television. We're just thankful it's back. Um, exactly. I think at the moment, the only country playing football is Belarus. That's right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In America, it's like we're, yeah, everyone's watching Belarusian soccer. They're kind of trying to learn the league and that and uh, South Korean baseball and I think ping pong and, and uh, marble racing. <laughs> My word, we really need sports to come back. Yeah, now, esports itself, do you have a big play in that market? Where does esports e- e- fit into yeah. Flick? Esports e- e- is a fascinating market. And actually, we've learned a lot from esports. We spent probably the first six to nine months of Flick's life actually looking at esports and learning from it. But what we discovered, well, one thing we discovered is very different from sports, it's a very different demographic. Typically, the people who watch esports do not watch traditional sports. Uh, and even today, I know ESPN has trialed esports and not had a good experience. And the reason is that the people who are going to watch esports are not watching it on ESPN. 
But one of the things eSports does have is great tools. They have great platforms. So in eSports, Twitch is such an incredible platform as a way to have live engagement, to have live chat around a particular streamer. And that's got a great ecosystem. Another product is called Discord, which is a chat platform for gamers. So they can, one, whenever they're getting together for a group game, they can all chat at the same time, but it also works in mobile. You could text. It's got all of these different communities, incredible number of communities across different servers. And so we looked at across Discord and, and Twitch, and we were like, these are incredible. What's the equivalent for sports? And we're like, it doesn't exist. And that's what really was the genesis of Flick, which was, why can't we have the same tools that they have in esports? Why can't, when I'm watching the game, quickly pull up a chat platform of other fans and like chat about that goal, that offside call? Why can't I easily chat with my friends? Why doesn't it give me the live scoring? Why can't I cheer? Why doesn't it give me the most recent news reports? You know, and so that was kind of the genesis. And we see it in Discord and, and Twitch for esports. It just didn't exist for sports prior to Flick. So beyond esports and beyond sports returning, where do you see Flick going? What other features, functions are you planning on the roadmap? So we just really want to go much deeper with sports. The other thing that we're seeing a pull for is more integration with betting. Like we're seeing users are wanting to make a prediction. They want to predict first goal score. So it's kind of natural to say, well, you know, you're predicting first goal score. He's actually five to one on, you know, William Hill or Ladbrokes. And so we're, we're looking at sort of deepening integration there. Sports betting in the U.S. is, as I mentioned, this year is a billion dollar market. It's, it's growing to be probably a $20 billion market. So we're really interested in, in integrating much more deeply with that. Also, we're excited about international markets. So like soccer and the major U.S. sports focus right now, but we already do have cricket groups. We already have you know, groups for other, like multiple other sports. We really want to grow those out as well. Yeah, India would be a massive market for cricket, I can imagine. Absolutely. And it's interesting in India, there's already a huge number of WhatsApp cricket groups, but WhatsApp's not really built for it. Like each group caps out of 256 users and it doesn't really scale that well. The reason they cap it is because it's not built for bigger groups. Our biggest groups have got over 10,000 users in them because it's built for these really big, big groups of like continuous scrolling and sort of multiple chat topics. And so we'd be really excited kind of bringing that into like an India market where you can actually have 10,000 people in the group or 50,000 people in the group chatting about, about cricket. Please don't show it to Mark Zuckerberg. He will try and copy it. <laughs> He's probably looking at it already. <laughs> Nigel, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating talking to you. Now, before you go, remind everyone again where they can go to sign up for Flick, please. Yes, absolutely. So uh, Flick is it's on the App Store. If you search for Flick Chat, uh, you'll find it in, in our directory, all the different teams we cover. Uh, or you can go to flickapp.com and basically find more about the company and links through then to the app. Nigel, thanks so much for your time. Good luck with that court case and hope to catch up with you soon when we're allowed out. See you soon. Thanks very much. Thank you, Sam. That show was amazing. Don't forget to visit samtalk.technology to discover more great shows. See you next week. Same time, same place.